Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position, along with your favorite beverage, to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine the show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we want to say thanks for the questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Nick W., Todd A., and Dave V. On the show today, new guest is Scott Treblecock, President and CEO of Core Mining, a Canadian-based developer advancing the Imperial Gold Project in Imperial County, California. The company also has exploration projects in Northern California, along with two projects in British Columbia. The company is listed on the Toronto Venture Exchange under the symbol K-O-R-E, and also on the US OTC markets under the symbol K-O-R-E-F. Scott, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you very much for having me. Well, Scott, uh, yourself and Core Mining is new to our audience. Let's go back before Nevsun. What did you do before coming to Nevsun? And then tell us why you were a key person at Nevsun through the Reservoir Minerals transaction and also through the Zygen buyout of Nevsun. Yeah, so I'm a Canadian process engineer. Got my education at a university called Queen's up in uh, Ontario. Uh, first job out of the gate. Uh, piqued an interest of mine. My uh, uncle had interestingly owned a mining equipment manufacturing business in Burlington, Ontario. And I used to work there as a shop hand. I used to sweep floors. Then I got to weld and I got to put on bolts and work with all the welder fitters. And it kind of got my interest peaked on, on the mining business. So I went immediately after my engineering degree, worked at Hatch, which uh, was then a growing relatively small engineering firm. Uh, jumped ship from there to a client called Naranda, got into sales where we were selling uh, sulfuric acid from the smelters in the United States. I went back, did an MBA at my alma mater, and I actually moved to Boston and became a management consultant and helped fix uh, tough, you know, I'd call it in some ways broken or challenged American businesses in the, in the Rust Belt largely in the, in the United States. Uh, came back to Canada to have a family, uh, joined a junior called Nautilus Minerals, which was a really interesting venture raised a lot of money to pioneer mining of the seafloor. It was a really exciting both promote and technical challenge. Uh, that only lasted a year and a half because I got approached by the CEO of Nevsun, Cliff Davis, at a conference. He called me up after and said, hey, Scott, you ever thought about moving to Vancouver? At which point I had never, ever thought such a thing. But I packed up a, a pregnant wife, a two-year-old, and moved off to Vancouver, joined Nevsun, and then originally joined as VP Biz Dev and IR, uh, built up the IR behind the company, bringing in analysts and investors and growing the market cap of the company, then transitioned into Corp Dev, tried to build the company as a as a gold company, but with an asset in North Africa, were challenged on valuation, transitioned to being a base metal company, as you mentioned, bought Reservoir. I was then head of Corp Dev and IR, mostly on the Corp Dev side. So led the reservoir transaction. It was a really successful transaction. I get really pumped up the market. We had an incredible project in Serbia. We had a lot of growth. It was a world-class project, partnered with Freeport McMoran, uh, and it attracted the interest of, of Zijin, which came in about a year and a half later, and through a long kind of contested M&A process beside uh, Lucas Lundin and a couple other bidders, we eventually sold the company to Zijin for 1.8 billion Canadian. 
I was a great transaction. I think it left me with a good, uh, good reputation on the street in Toronto. Great experiences through all kinds of uh, efforts at Nevsun. Uh, but when I left Nevsun, I decided that uh, base metals were not the place to be at this point in the economic cycle. And I said, I want to find a great gold company I can be an owner of. And Core was the one. Well, that's a great overview, and you bring up a lot of different things. Uh, Nautilus Minerals, I remember that. I believe they're still listed. And Nevsun, we covered Nevsun, uh, had Nevsun as a recommendation of Smith Weekly Research, did well on finally after a little bit of a bumpy road. Reservoir Minerals, I used to have way back that was successful. And where's Cliff Davis at these days? Pretty much enjoying retirement. Keep waiting for him to uh, pop up on the... uh on a board here and there in Vancouver, but I think he worked, uh, he was known to be a, like basically a workaholic and, you know, both as an accountant and as the CEO and of Nevsun. So I think his wife made him take a couple of years off. I think he'll start popping up on boards here in the near future. Yeah, excellent. No, looking forward to seeing what he's going to be up to next. And if he yeah, did, did an incredible job, I learned a lot from him. Well, yeah, that'll be interesting. And speak just a little bit about, just a little bit more here before we get into core, the Zygen buyout. You know, we know that Lundin was in there. Now that that's all over with, talk a little bit about that and, and talk about some of the areas in which you had your opinions and your efforts to make sure that the transaction was was suitable. Just talk about that for a moment, if you will. Yeah, I mean, it was a really interesting process. In, in the end, it lasted almost a year. I think the setup was that um, Freeport and the Lundin, my, Lundin Mining, that branch of Lucas Lundin's empire, were very interested in this Serbian project. And, you know, I think overplayed their cards in thinking they could push a junior partner reservoir around. And, you know, really it allowed Nevsun to sort of sneak in on a on a this uh, this right of first refusal angle that uh, was left on the table when when Lute, when Lundin went after reservoir and allowed us to swoop in and, and sort of trump them on the transaction. I think it left Freeport unexpectedly with kind of a real mid-tier partner where they were hoping it would be Lucas. So that kind of, uh, so, you know, Nevsun went out and we had enough capital, we had a couple hundred million bucks in the bank. So we started drilling aggressively and pushing the project forward. And I think all behind the scenes, you know, Lucas and the Lundin was trying to find a way back in without uh, to sort of save face, get the asset and work with Freeport to, you know, open up the the bore camp for, you know, what I think will be decades of, of copper production to come. Um, so they approached Nevsun about a year before the actually the, the final transaction happened. And, you know, they really wanted to take a friendly approach. However, they weren't willing to pay Nevsun the value we thought we were worth. And that allowed us to, you know, we signed a CA. We sort of went through a sort of slow play process on purpose so that we could build up uh, not only work on the project, but, uh, you know, also find other buyers. It allowed us, you know, fortunately, you know, if they were, I think with hindsight, they probably would have gone hostile on us right away. And, you know, Zijin probably wouldn't have been there because I think at that point they were uh, working on getting another piece of uh, Friedland's African projects. So it was only when they lost that that they came to the table and enough, you know, unfortunately, Lundin went slow enough where it allowed us to create competitive tension. We actually had two or three bidders at the table by the end. And, you know, the learning for me, you know, as an insider looking out was, you know, when you see opportunity, you know, you got to pounce, you got to pounce hard. Um, from an internal perspective, I think there's a, 
you know, in the Canadian system allows you a lot of flexibility as a target of M&A to set up competitive tension and deliver maximum value. So I don't know. I, I'm sad as a Canadian to see another Canadian company uh, disappear to the to the east. On the flip side, it was a great value delivery to investors and shareholders. Yeah, yeah it was interesting process there, and just lots of different things going on. And you know, Freeport, I believe, divested that project. And yeah, I think you know, they wanted a Western partner, and they they you know they tried really hard through that process to get the partner they wanted. And I think when when it didn't work out, they uh, yeah, they wanted they monetized quite quickly to uh, to Zijin. Yeah, yeah, lots of different moving parts, and of course, then now they've got the asset in in Tria to deal with. Lots of different stuff there. Zijin, of course, yeah. hooked up with Friedland and Ivanhoe, and that that continues to be a, a massive operation there. And yeah, just a lot of interesting stuff here. There was there was well, a ton of interesting moving parts for sure. Like behind the scenes, it was week to week, day to day. What little, what little drama was going to come up? How is this process going to plan out? And ultimately, it always goes back to simple, you know, business fundamentals that, you know, if you want the best price, you need competitive tension. And, you know, they gave us the time to go find that competitive tension. It drove Zijin to, I think, the maximum price they possibly could have paid at that time. Good stuff. And sometimes I think about when you guys, you know, these... When you start that process, we had a, a number of comp competitors come in, and it's literally just, "Hey, send us your proposals, and we'll we'll evaluate and make a decision." So it's it's fantastic. I like the bidding process. Let's talk about core. Why don't we start just off the top here, Scott, and talk a little bit about cover the capital structure for us, the cash on hand, and also the key shareholders. We're just about in the next day or so to close a three million dollar financing with two of our strategic investors. Uh, that would be Mr. Eric Sprott and Macquarie Bank. Uh, that'll put Eric at about 15 and change. That'll put uh, Macquarie at seven and change percent of the uh, shares outstanding. Uh, management owns in the high 40s. That's management and the board collectively, 40%. And the rest is publicly traded, although largely, uh, and good news changing, um, with high net worth and and you know individuals, so it's a very tightly held share register currently, and that's because you know as you say, core is new to Smith Weekly. It's also you know new to the market in general, in that we have not had years to build up the uh, the cap structure, so it's still tightly owned. I think it's it's important as a, when a company's in this phase to keep it as tight as possible, while taking those steps to you know get broader distribution on the shares increase liquidity and just increasingly raise money at uh, at higher valuations like any startup company. So I view core no different from a pharmaceutical startup or a tech startup. We've got our, you know, insiders and our main mezzanine financiers who just topped up with 3 million, like I said last week. Uh, and we're looking to eventually grow that into a larger shareholder base as we increase our valuation. And I think we've got real assets in this company to accomplish that because we're not you know, an early stage exploration company. So cash at this point, you guys are sitting just under 5 million Canadian or where are you at there? Yeah, yeah, at the close with the fees paid, yeah, we'll be right about 5 million. And talk to us a little bit about other major shareholders, uh, Baxland Pacific Management and also shareholder James Hines. Yeah, Baxland is, uh, is one of the companies for uh, Adrian Rothwell. So Adrian Rothwell and James Hines are the two founders of Core as a private company. So we'll just 
go back and talk a little bit about CORE history. I think it's important to understand the context for your listeners. Uh, CORE was founded by James and Adrian in 2017. And I think they had you know, a very forward-looking view that you know, gold at that point was a, a sector nobody cared about. Assets were you know, on the block cheap. Gold companies, small gold companies were going bust. Producers were all focused on balance sheet and you know, generating cash flow and paying down debt. And James recognized that, hey, this is a good time to buy gold assets. You know, you, you got to buy unloved sectors when they're unloved if you want to get assets cheap. So they were able to buy the two assets are currently in core in California as a private company. Uh, one of them was because of Adrian's connections at Gold Corp. And, and that's the Imperial project you mentioned is our flagship project. David Garofalo had just come into Gold Corp. He kind of looked around at all the old stuff lying around kind of in the dustbins of the company and he sold it all. And, you know, Core is one of the companies that benefited from that sort of, uh, you know, sale and were able to get a project uh, extremely cheap. Uh, so Adrian and James obviously held all the shares in the company at that time. They then went public through a reverse takeover <clears throat> of a longtime Vancouver explorer called Eureka Resources, who had run out of money in that same kind of period, couldn't raise any capital, and were willing to trade most of their shares to Adrian and James to get exposure to the Imperial Project. But it also came with a portfolio of assets that included what we believe are two high-quality exploration projects in BC, which, end, which is how CORE ended up with four 100% owned gold assets. So Adrian and James and, and Adrian through Blacksland, as you mentioned, you know, own, I think, about 35% of the shares today still. And can you speak to just to James and Adrian, their background a little bit and their expertise? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, James is a really interesting fellow. He's He's the primary reason I joined the company. Uh, as I said, when I left Nevsun, I was looking around for a next opportunity, obviously for my career, as well as a way to make some money and decided first I wanted to go into precious metals. So I networked a lot all around Vancouver and people I knew. I wanted to work with people also that I liked and I could get along with. We could have a bit of fun along the road of building a company and uh, met James, built a good rapport with him, eventually joined as CEO about 10 months ago after the Macquarie investment. And the Macquarie investment was important because it was the due diligence that, you know, validated the asset to me to join. And on top of that was, you know, James himself. James had made his money and funded CORE. He's a geologist from New Brunswick. <clears throat> he made his money in Alberta, exploring for uh, sand and gravel deposits, aggregates. You know, I think he also dabbled in the uh, oil juniors. This was probably five years ago. He ended up selling uh, his last company to Lafarge, who used that to, you know, build oil sands projects. You know, as we know, though, the oil sands business uh, fell on hard times three or four years ago, and certainly the construction dried up uh, before that. So he moved to Vancouver and started CORE with his this theory on gold is the right place to be in the future. And I think he was, you know, very forward looking on that front. So he's He's the geologist's brain behind picking the assets. Adrian was his partner with some with a corp dev background and had the, the gold corp connection that eventually brought in the Imperial project. Adrian is still a director of the company today, but he's off working on, a, on another startup at the moment, so he's no longer part of management. And Scott, can you highlight for us just for the audience at what price each of these major shareholders owns their shares so we can get some perspective on that? So Macquarie and Eric have both put in money twice. The most recent round with Eric and Macquarie last week was at 45 cents with no warrants. So there's no sweeteners. That's a straight 45 cents. And I think that was a great signal to the market 
that core has access to capital to keep a clean cap structure which is very important you know to make sure we can keep momentum up in the value increase in the company you know you're not issuing a whole bunch of warrants that guys strip off and trade and short and all the stuff that goes on around that so you know, we've got a very clean cap structure from that front um, prior to that uh, Eric had put in his first investment at 30 cents with no warrant in August of last year so that was at a uh, let's see, he put in a, his second investment was at a 50% higher valuation than his first, 30 than 45 cents. Uh, Macquarie, however, got a super deal. They were the first money into the company. After going public in November of 2018, Core was effectively broke. They didn't raise any money in the IPO. As I said, people forget, a year for, a year ago from today, nobody gave a two-bit, two, you know, pardon the, pardon the French, two shits about... Uh, small cap gold companies in you know that uh, were sub 100 million market cap so they struggled to get capital so macquarie got a really good deal they put in four million bucks in may of 2019 they bought a one percent royalty on the original imperial licenses which is the the current resource and, and pea project they bought about uh, what now is was about five percent of the equity of the company and they bought a right to finance so they've got a rofo and a rofer on project finance to fund construction of the mine. And that's important because I lean on that when I talk to shareholders and because I, as a shareholder, bought my shares on market before I became CEO on the basis of, hey, Macquarie is a bank. They bought a right to finance and a royalty. You only get a return on those things if something becomes a mine. They did six months of due diligence. And I know the gentleman that did the diligence in, in Vancouver, and he's a very well-respected technical guy, Tony Scott. And you know, it was their work and their confidence that gave me the confidence to go in there and that Imperial will be a mine. And the early founders, uh, was some of that going on, uh, just looking at the share price, that was back down around probably the 12 cent area. Is that correct? Yeah, it traded out of the IPO gate. You know, the original IPO was technically at 25 cents, I think. It was before my time, but they also got investors at that point also got part of a founder share to try and spread out and reduce the... Uh, you know the founder ownership so really it effectively i think traded at a at, at an appropriate valuation of about half that in the sort of 12 cent range and it wasn't until the macquarie money came in in may of 2019 you see a bit of an uptick in the share price then i came in july we brought in eric in august we staked a bunch of ground in september we started doing geology work we hired mark leduc very important uh, member of the management team in charge of imperial uh, then you know, rolled into now actually doing work on the ground and delivering physical uh, news releases that are actually, you know, real advancement of the assets on the ground. So the company's matured a lot in the 12 months since Macquarie's investment. And how about your approach to GNA expenses and the compensation levels for this stage of company? What's your approach there, Scott? When I came into the company, I actually cut exec salaries. And, you know, I'm fully, I'm willing to, if times are, are tight on capital to not take a salary, I'm here because I'm a shareholder and an owner of the company. I can control directly or indirectly about 5% of the uh, fully diluted shares of the company. Um, so yes, we pay ourselves uh, a salary. Uh, I don't think it's, it's very significant. It's, it's a salary I would not take for any other job <laughs> where I was an owner. And I think our our GNA is actually primary claim fees in the United States. Um, those that know the regulatory regimes between the different countries, the United States is a, is a jurisdiction where you don't have work requirements to hold claims, you have to pay fees. 
So we've got now we've got a huge block of claims around Imperial, about 20,000 acres of a thousand claims. We've got a big block up at our Long Valley project. And, you know, the bulk of our overhead, about uh, like 500 grand Canadian is, is annual claim fees that get paid in September. So, you know, management fees, yeah, we take them. They're pretty modest by, you know, my comparative to other peers. I cut them when I came in and it's all about working for equity and share price in a company of this size. And let's move on to uh, Imperial, Scott. Why don't you give us just a brief overview and then let's get into the PEA. Yeah, so Imperial Project, uh, it's a 2.2 million ounce oxide gold resource at surface in Imperial County, California. Project was originally drilled out and taken through a feasibility study and into permitting by Glamis Gold in the 1990s. I think they completed the feasibility at uh, 375 gold in uh, uh, 1996. Uh, they ran into Clinton era environmental politics and you know had some headwinds in permitting the project in Imperial County, became a bit of a lightning rod for uh, NGOs at the time that were looking for desert protection measures in California. You know, and by the time they, the, the pathway was cleared for them to build a mine, uh, California had implemented the backfill law and gold was 250 bucks an ounce. So unfortunately for them, the project was rendered uh, uneconomic in those conditions, and they put the project on the shelf. Klamis, as everyone knows, went on to have uh, great success in Nevada and South America, merged to become Gold Corp. And, you know, the key guys, Chuck Janess, Kevin MacArthur, that, you know, originally took this project forward, had a lot of attachment to it and kept it inside Gold Corp until, until we bought it in 2017. So uh, it would, the important thing is that the project was drilled out and by an incredibly well-respected company. So we've got a really good basis to build off here as we go forward in uh, in 2020. Okay, appreciate the uh, the information there on the overview. Now, let's talk PEA. Can you give me uh, an overview on the PEA? And also just going forward here, is management confident enough at this point to move straight to a feasibility or are you guys looking to move to pre-feasibility? Yeah, good question. So to answer your, your confidence question, it kind of actually speaks to the numbers of the PEA. The PEA showed a NPV of the project of almost 500 million Canadian at 1450 gold, or that's 343 million US. It's got a very low pre-production capital number compared to the amount of production at 142 million US dollars. Uh, mine should produce about 150,000 ounces a year for eight years which puts it right smack dab in the crosshairs of good projects for mid-tier miners looking for growth. And particularly when you compare it to its peers, uh, Integra and Liberty and Corvus and Gold Standard, the project stands up as well or better from a, a, an economics perspective. We're very confident in those numbers because this mine uh, is located nine miles from an operating mine called Mesquite, which has very similar tons moved, very similar mining equipment, and our chief operating officer, Mark LeDuc, uh, was part of Equinox Gold for a while and ran that uh, that mine. So he knows very well what the costs are. So we're, we're very confident we can deliver the numbers in the PEA. And because of Glamis's work in the past, this is not a junior that discovered a resource, drilled out something, inferred, and is kind of guessing. We're very, very confident in this PEA. And to answer your question, we're actually moving the project directly into permitting. Uh, we won't do the feasibility until we get uh, close to the end of the permitting process. So short answer, we're gonna skip PFS, go right to FS, 
very confident in the PEA numbers and we're the most important thing we do is get this project into permitting so we can get to the end of that and build a mine as quickly as possible. And talk about the full permitting timeline, Scott. When do you expect to have all approvals to construct? Right now, the engineering team has taken the PEA mine plan. They're generating the key document to start permitting, which is your application to the BLM. So we're on federal land in the United States. So the Bureau of Land Management is our primary regulator. And you need that document's called the plan of operations. So we're expecting to submit that in the middle of, of this year. So upcoming here in a few months, that will kick off uh, a, a, an environmental impact assessment where we got to build on the great data we have from GLAMIS, update uh, you know, biological studies and all those things. That'll take about a year. Once that EIS is accepted by the BLM, it's a uh, thank you to the Republican administration, a one-year review process within the BLM. Uh, that would take us to about two years to get a record of decision, which would be your primary approvals to construct a mine. And we would time the feasibility study because the deposit is well drilled. We probably only need about 5,000 meters to upgrade the resource to get it all into P&P. So we would time the drilling and the feasibility to coincide with uh, the process to finance the construction is more important than, you know, than necessarily moving right into the feasibility today. Can you speak to just uh, the California permitting as well? Is that going to go in line? And would you say at this point that we are potentially two years out for having full approval, the construction phase following uh, somewhere around a year to 18 months after that? You're right. For, let's address the first part of that question, which is the permitting environment in California. You know, if you step back and look at California as a whole, you know, you know it's one of the largest economies in the world. They permit lots of earth-moving operations in the gravel business. Rio Tinto has a very large, long-life mine at Bornite, which is actually the namesake place for the mineral. Um, and there are other large industrial mineral operations in, in, in California. So they have a bureaucracy that understands, knows how to permit and manage mining. Um, California law, however, is applied to federal land at the county level. So most important to our permitting process is Imperial County. And Imperial County is has a long history of mining, which is exactly why we are all, and Macquarie is all excited about this project. It's located nine miles from an operating gold mine that's been there 25 years, Mesquite. In the uh, 80s, there were four operating open pit heat bleach mines in Imperial County. Uh, US Gypsum has had an open pit uh, gypsum mine there for decades. And generations of Imperial Valley families have grown up with members of their family working and, and, and taking great jobs at the mine. So in that context, Mesquite is coming to the end of its mine life and the county is greatly concerned about employment and the future of the taxes and revenues from uh, mining. So we think we've got good local traction to, you know, get the best, you know, smoothest pro path through that process. So the county is very important and we believe we have a supportive uh, county and local stakeholders. Uh, to your question of timeline, uh, you'd have to go, we still have to get some uh, other local permits like the water board, another thing after we get our record decision from the BLM. So we would we would peg it at uh, three years from the middle of this year to actually break ground on the project, in which case it's actually a very, very quick build because we have no pre-stripping and we'd expect it, we expect to only be uh, 10 to 12 months to be actually producing gold from the pads. Talk just a minute about that, the water permits. Can you speak to the concern there with getting water permits? Is there any issue on that front? And then also speak to Mr. LaDuke and his experience 
Newcastle, Castle Mountain uh, project. Can you speak to his expertise and, and how key he is to actually getting you guys through this process? Yeah, short answer on water, not expected to be an issue in any way. California actually has very, very clear water rights. As long as you're in an unregulated aquifer, which we are, the only other user of our aquifer is Mesquite, and they've drawn water from that uh, for now going on 25 years. And we actually have water wells and monitoring well, well, sorry, monitoring wells and a production water well drilled by Glamis because they were that close to production back in the day that we have opened up. They're still intact and we expect, uh, and there's water. So there's no, no belief that water will be an issue. So getting to, to Mark, uh, Mark's background was perfectly fit for our project. I was so excited to actually be able to attract him to the company. Mark is a lifetime heap leach mining engineer and geologist. He built a large heap leach mine in the early part of his career for Barrick. He then went into and, and built out mine plans and mines for several other juniors. Most recently, he was the COO who built out the mine plan, as you mentioned, for the Castle Mountain Mine um, in Newcastle Gold for Richard Wark. Uh, he, and and uh, he put together a credible plan. He was the guy who worked with the California regulators. Now, in this case, he was in San Bernardino County, but he, he were, worked through the California process to get that project to the point where Equinox was willing to buy it and pay a good amount of money for it. And they are basically executing his plan right now. And I think that's the key part of the strategy for CORE is we're going to take this project forward at Imperial like we're going to build it. Uh, we're going to do everything on the ground right from stakeholder engagement, from social license to operate through technical work and move this project. And if we have to, we have Mark's the perfect guy. He could build this mine. It's as simple as mining gets. It's a gravel pit with a heap leach pad. Dead simple. However, we don't we fully expect that the exit for core shareholders will eventually be uh, a sale to a, a mid-tier uh, producer, whether that be Equinox who owns the mine down the road or another. That's part of the reason we went out and staked a huge exploration play around this project because it, it is a standalone great growth project with control of an entire historic gold district. So uh, we think it's a it's a great project and eventually an eventual exit for core shareholders will be monetization. Scott, speak a little bit more to if something doesn't happen uh, over this period and process. We know that financing usually is a sticking point for for potential suitors. But when, when the, what would the financing package look like if you guys were to bring this on on your own? And when would the financing package be set up? Would it be after the record of decision? What's your thoughts on financing? Yeah, you, yeah, you nailed it. Exactly. So the, the second you get that record of decision, you probably, I mean, you'll have a good idea that's coming. So you'll probably have already completed your infill drilling. Um, at that point, you'll do your feasibility, which will take, you know, eight months. You'll make sure you have your project finance bank and any other lenders alongside going through that process so they're comfortable with the final feasibility study. In our case, that would be Macquarie and anybody that wanted to compete with Macquarie. Our pre-production capex, however, is very small. It's only 142 million US, of which 35.3 is mining equipment. Mining equipment, very likely you could get uh, it, you know, a lease agreement with uh, Cat Finance or something like that. So your pre-production capital is now, now down to 110. So you'd get to probably 70% of that, 60 to 70% of that in the project finance facility from Macquarie or equivalent lending bank, which means you know, core only needs, let's give ourselves a little buffer here and say 
50 to 75 million bucks US and we can get this thing in production. And for a project of this scale, that is a very, very low hurdle. So I think we're very confident we can finance the project on a standalone basis. Um, I suspect our market cap is much higher. <laughs> if we get a record of a decision on this project and we trade at a you know 0.5 to one times PNAV, that's a 250 to 500 million Canadian PNAV only needing, you know, say 100 million Canadian in, in cap financing. That's a very doable amount. So I think it's part of the reason it's a great project. And, you know, with the market conditions now, with the unforeseen uh, extent of this decline in the markets with COVID and the collapse of, as you mentioned earlier, the, the Canadian oil business and the U.S. oil business, my suspicion is, is that there'll be a lot of contractors in the U.S., a lot of used, almost new equipment floating around in the market. So I do watch that equipment market and there could be some an amazing set of opportunities coming out for folks that are looking for uh, various equipment that's available as a result of these other industries being severely challenged here. How about leaching and test work? How many days on the pad do you guys expect? What are you guys coming out with on your uh, recoveries and time on the pad? Great news about Imperial. It's, it's an incredibly simple deposit. It's 100% oxide which makes it metallurgically very simple. Core is planning a run of mine operation, so no crushing, forecasting 73% recovery from, from run of mine operation. Keep leach cycle has is, is been well tested by Glamis. They had done side-by-side -side testing with their Picacho mine, which is running out of ore at the time they were trying to develop Imperial. And that was also an open pit uh, heap leach uh, mine about eight miles away from, from Imperial. Uh, heat leach cycle is expected to be about uh, three months or a quarter. So we'll be stack. We have zero pre-strip on this deposit. We have outcrop. So we'll be stacking ore on, you know, day one of mining. And we'd expect to have be pouring gold bars, you know, in, in your second and probably your third month or so your third quarter of operation here. So working capital requirements are, are very low and gold comes out really quick. Excellent. Can you talk just a little bit about your guys's, you know, the inferred resource? When do you expect to start converting that? What are your thoughts on, you know, when that might be done to improve the profile of the project? What's your thoughts on that front? So the deposit is actually very well drilled from a density perspective. I think the key reason that there's inferred resources, uh, you know, listening to the, uh, the, the modelers and the geologists is more confidence of data. We are relying on uh, Glamis's, you know, assay lab at Picacho and Mesquite because they used uh, local labs at the time where we can't validate the uh, methodologies. So in current uh, CIM standards, you know, we have to downgrade, you know, those resources on that confidence. So the bulk of our drilling is actually going to be 20 existing holes to confirm the, the assays. Now, Glamis was a very well-respected company. They were running a mine at the time, so we don't expect there's going to be any issues there. There probably also will be a little bit of infill. But we're only expecting uh, the guys have currently scoped about 5,000 meters, and it's near surface drilling. So uh, it's a very small program. You can do it in a few months, and it's easy. Okay. And Scott, what's your thoughts on converting that inferred? Can you speak to just a little bit of a ballpark confidence level on on how much of that can be converted? Oh, I mean, we'll convert all of it for the feasibility. I wouldn't want to lose an ounce. Now, we've only, in the mine plan now, we've only got uh, 1.5 million of the 2.2 million ounces. So we will convert all of that so we can put it into, out of inferred, so we can put it into proven and probable. 
there is more material at depth, sort of on, on the deposit down plunge, that will only be brought into the mine plan with higher gold prices. We'll see where we're at in, you know, when you go to make a construction decision on this thing in, in, in two and a half or three years, you may choose to push the pits a bit deeper and bring in more material, in which case we probably would need to do a bit more work. But uh, we won't spend a lot of effort in filling at depth because with backfilling in California, you you know as soon as you start mining this thing, you're going to be backfilling sequentially backfilling pits as you go. So you're going to want to know everything out of the gate at this thing. So I think it's more important that we do step out and exploration drilling to make sure we don't sterilize anything than in filling the current deposit. So I think we're likely to do more meters of exploration in and around the site than we are in filling. Yeah, and speak to that for a moment. So I think one of the concerns potentially here, we have in the PEA an eight-year life of the asset here. Speak to the exploration package. I know you said you're nine miles from Mesquite approximately. Talk about your guys' confidence level to do some exploring um, and expansion to maybe get that life of mine up beyond the 10-year life to potentially also just improve how that looks from a production profile and longer life standpoint. So in our minds, there's two very distinct and equally important exploration opportunities we've we've secured. So when we bought the project from Goldcorp, it included amount of licenses that's all the land, including the resource that you'd need to put your road and, and processing equipment, plus a little, little wiggle room around it. We went out with, uh, after the investment from Eric Sprott and staked an additional 1,000 claims in 20,000 acres. That basically ties up all the ground from our project all the way to the west to Mesquite. We literally have claims right up to the bottom of their heat bleach pads. And in similarly, the other way to the back over to the east, all the way over to Picacho. So we've got a uh, about a 26 kilometer, I think it's you know 18 mile trend all at surface that currently hosts those three deposits and outcrop, and it's all covered by sediment. So we've got the possibility to discover entire new deposits of the scale of Mesquite or Imperial. Mesquite's uh, uh, 6.5 million ounces produced and another couple million to go, so it's a large deposit. Um, so greenfield discovery is our is what we believe is the most likely on our on our ground, and then at and around the mine. Uh, the project, you know, the deposit's been fractured up with a couple, you know, up-down drops of blocks as the ground is faulted. And we believe there's an opportunity in between the two of the current uh, pits in the mine plan to bring in some more ounces. And geophysics also shows we have some on-strike potential undercover, which is good because we're not putting any of our waste dumps or other infrastructure on strike. So we'll we'll leave that open for discovery. And then we've also got a large geophysics anomaly at depth under the deposit, which we want to make sure we test to understand what it is before we finalize our mine plan. So still a lot of work to do both at the deposit and equally exciting out on that regional exploration package to try and make some new discoveries. Because you know, if we run a drill hole through a new deposit out on those that exploration ground, it's going to put a lot of pressure on the mid-tier miners to take a run at the company. Yeah, and Scott, tell me about how the topography looks between the Mesquite mine and where the Imperial flat. deposit is here. This Can you speak to area, just this entire area is just flat, open northern Sonoran Desert, like you'd expect to see in Mexico. Very low-level vegetation, no barriers at all by topography. It's flat as a pancake. So, are you saying you could pretty much take a thirty-ton haul truck and drive it from the deposit over to Mesquite? Yeah, absolutely, you could. Okay, good point to just 
highlight there. And talk a little bit more about your guys's other company assets for a moment. You know, we've seen, we know you guys have the other projects, you know, we've seen Liberty Gold, for example, uh, monetize some of their non-core projects as they focus on really two projects. Is there a thought process where you guys would consider uh, offloading non-core projects to focus more on Imperial? Uh, what's your thought process on that? And you can go ahead and maybe overview us on the other assets as well. Yeah, excellent question. I like the comparison as well. We think in very uh, similar ways to where what Liberty uh, faced in their company. Um, so Core has four gold projects. We've been talking primarily about Imperial. The second project I'll talk about is called Long Valley. Long Valley is a 1.7 million ounce oxide transition and sulfide deposit drilled by Royal Gold in Mono County, California, basically due west of Reno, Nevada, just across the California border, currently on a forest, on a U.S. Forest Service ground with a, with a cattle license over it. So it's, you know, primarily used for cattle grazing currently. <clears throat> Deposits right at the surface. Uh, it was a really exciting project for Royal Gold, but they abandoned the project at the same time as Glamis abandoned this project, Imperial project, because of the backfill law and the low gold price. As we know, Royal Gold went on to become a gold company and the project just got left on the shelf. Uh, interesting deposit. It's uh, probably could do a PAR right now and get a great outcome. We've gone out and done field work and we think there's some great opportunities to very low cost drill more oxide. So that's probably going to be our, our first move on that project. would be uh, growing the resource from 1.7 million ounces to increase the scale a bit. And then up in BC, we've got uh, two projects located in the Caribou region of BC, also shallow gold projects with at surface discoveries. Um, road accessible, this is in Golden Triangle helicopters, cheap exploration. There's multiple mines in this area, including Mount Pauly, Tosico's Gibraltar, uh, Cisco, Spanish Mountain. Uh, and we've got a million ounces that uh, FG Gold we're currently drilling to try and increase the grade and make the project more attractive than the current resource grade. If we're successful doing that, we've got a great exploration opportunity to open up that project to more exploration. News is coming out on that project in a couple of weeks. So when you look at this portfolio, I, myself and the board have spent a lot of time thinking about how do we mature the company so that it's got the same kind of valuation levels as you mentioned one, Liberty, Integra. We see all those as gold standard, uh, Corvus, we all saw those as peer companies. I think the smallest of those is 150 million Canadian. The biggest being, I think, 375 million Canadian, all with similar or smaller resources and projects than, than Imperial. So we're going to continue to explore the portfolio for now to make sure we can wave our arms about the quality of our ounces in the ground. We can attract attention to core from marketing those drill results, demonstrating activity and the ability to deliver milestones as the company's value appreciates to something closer to our peers, we will face the same decisions that Marco Day and, and, and the Liberty guys have faced at, uh, at that project, which is what do you do with these projects? Once Imperial is truly embedded in why everyone's investing in the company, then we'll probably look at spinning out or monetizing some of those non-core assets. Yeah, that sounds good. And certainly, yeah, Liberty seems to have done a nice job. Cal is, is doing a fantastic job in their in their management team. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I would you know, I think our projects got equal equivalents and hopefully we can do even half a good a job as he's done it, uh, you know, putting that company forward to the market. And if we can, you know, you've got a massive win from our valuation today. Well, talk just a little bit more about 
as far as you know pulling the trigger just so the audience knows on construction type scenario over the next couple of years if someone doesn't come along scott is it your view that management with your past experience and some of the other folks uh, on the management team and directors do you guys see that you guys have sufficient experience to bring on and commission a mine in the management team i would answer that question absolutely yes uh, I've got full confidence in Mark LaDuke to take this project through permitting in California. He knows California. He's built heap leach mines. He's configured a ton of projects over his career. And we're incredibly lucky that, you know, he wants a project that's relatively close to his home that for uh, for lifestyle reasons in, in, at this point in his career. So I think from a management team perspective, we're great. I would expect to see some changes in the board over time to bring in some more development experience. Um, and see that part of the uh, the business mature, but obviously that'll be something we'll work on with the independent directors uh, over time. And talk just a little bit about uh, if you can share some information with us. Are there any conversations, or just just even casual with Equinox Gold, or is there any other potential suitors that are investigating the company at this point? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. We have a we have a, a dialogue with Equinox. We're we're partners in Imperial County, and that we're our projects are side by side each other. Uh, Mark's very well known because he's actually sold two projects to Equinox. He was also the CEO of Luna when it was originally merged to form Equinox. Um, so yes, we know their management well. Yes, we're trying to cooperate with them in Imperial County with messaging to communities because we're we're either going to be side by side each other operating mines, although they might <laughs> their mine might be closing by the time we're in production. But so yes, there's a dialogue. I don't want to you know their timing for if and when they're interested in core. I'll leave I'll leave to them. And then as far as other companies, yes, we've seen interest in the company. We've been signing CAs since our PA came out, uh, you know, just over a month ago. And, you know, one of the things we're going to pursue here, because we're the only one of our peers that doesn't have a mining company on the share register. So I think looking around for a minority 9.9 to 19.9 mining partner to give us more credibility, to bring in some skills on both the exploration and the development side would be, I think, a good move for core and further cement the credibility of, of our assets. So we'll certainly run some of those leads to the ground and see if we can generate some interest from others. I think Imperial with the expiration play around it is a solid enough asset that it, it'll it attract other mid-tiers, not just Equinox. And like I said earlier, I guess looping all the way back to that Nevsen conversation at the beginning, you know, I think we can create competitive tension around Imperial. It's that good a project and a, and a belt. And if we're if we do, we will generate lots of value for core shareholders. Well, wrapping up here, Scott, plans for the rest of the year. What are your capital needs going out for the rest of the year at this point? And is the full focus really going to stay on advancing Imperial as fast as possible, with the exception of, of course, uh, shaping up some of those other projects for potential monetization? The other current strategy is we're going to pursue both exploration and development. You know, doing the plan operations, engaging with stakeholders, and and moving the Imperial project into permitting actually doesn't cost a lot of money. Uh, so we've got the five million dollars in the kitty. We plan to uh, undertake more exploration on the regional exploration ground around Imperial. I think we saw our shares uh, catch a bid on a news release around that. A couple of weeks ago, and I think that's going to be a very exciting and growing part of the story. Potential for greenfield discoveries, so that's sort of use of capital number two. We're also going, just wrapped up a drill program at, uh, at FG Gold with drill results pending. If we're successful there, we would probably follow those up with a few more holes. And we're also permitting drill holes at uh, Long Valley. 
and we'd like to go out and do a bit of work there. Now, because all our projects are shallow, we can do thousand to 2000 meter programs and be able to show people we can deliver on our exploration concepts. And we can use that to attract excitement in the company, or as you said, monetizing or generating value from those assets by doing the work first. So uh, short answer to that question, you know, we plan to spend a couple million bucks exploring and the rest of the money on pushing, pushing the Imperial project uh, into the permitting process. Can you just speak briefly on the exploration front, Scott? Uh, maybe speak to some key people. I left that out. Who's, who's kind of the lead guy in the field there as far as geologist standpoint on the drilling? James Hines, our exec chair. He leads geology this day. He's very involved. I mean, he's a true exec chair. He's working in the company on a daily basis. Uh, and then we've got a couple Canadian-based geos that uh, that do actually the field work. So we got a nice, tight little team. I think you're going to see from... Yeah, you know, the work we're doing at FG Gold, as well as you know, the targeting work we've done previously, that we've you've kind of been delivering on all our milestones so far, and let's hope they can uh, deliver some great drill results. But you know, it's Mother Nature; it's drilling, so we'll have we'll have some hits and misses. But if we get some good hits here on that regional exploration, man, it's really going to drive core. And for potential investors who are on the sidelines listening, what would you say to them at this stage and at current price levels? Why should they look at core mining, Scott? So 55 million Canadian market cap today, right? We've got 4.9 million ounces of MINI in the ground. That's across a portfolio of projects. So we've got options for how we deliver news and excitement about the company and how we work to capitalize. We can monetize assets. We can bring in joint venture partners. We can keep moving forward and building the core story. And then backing that, we've got a 500 million Canadian PEA on a project. So you've got both ounces in the ground and a nice conservative real PEA uh, backing the valuation of the companies. And when you compare us on almost any metric to peers, we look really cheap. And I think that's just simply awareness. We've only been a company now in the markets for about 12 months. And our peers like Liberty and, and Integra and those guys have been working their companies for two to five and sometimes 10 years. As that awareness grows up, we expect to close that valuation gap as well as to increase value with the drill bit. So lots of ways to deliver increased and more peer level valuations to our shareholders. And those will be a huge win. And the best way for investors to reach out to the company? Give us a call, 888-407-5450. Drop us a line at info at coremining.com. You know, we know most of our key shareholders. You know, we're a very tight group and we want to Make sure everybody is excited about the company and just give us a call or drop us an email. Well, Scott, thanks for taking the time to introduce us to Core Mining. Good luck on advancing the Imperial project and the other assets. We look forward to watching the progress. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. It was a great experience and we're really excited to get out there and tell the core story.